Well, welcome to everyone. I know we're short some Americans tonight for family reasons. I understand that. I know all about Thanksgiving, but we don't have it in England, essentially, except for some coffee clutches of American expatriates. It's not a holiday over here. In fact, the people we call the Puritans fled King James, as in King James Bible, who persecuted them to... <laughs> to Massachusetts to get religious freedom. Don't tell any KJV-only people that the reasons the pilgrims came on the Mayflower and had Thanksgiving was because they were thanking God they escaped from the so-called king who authorized the King James Bible. But that's another issue. History is so often redacted and revisionistic. It's really interesting when you read the real history. Uh, the pilgrims did not use the King James Bible. They associated it with him who persecuted them. They read something called the Geneva Bible, an English translation of the scriptures they obtained during the Marian exile in Switzerland. Uh, but again, what's popular and what is real are two different things. Scripturally, the day of Thanksgiving for, for Israel was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was over last month. Feast of Tabernacles. The time of year we're in, coming up to what's called Christmas, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, according to John chapter 9 and 10. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah at this time of year, and Thanksgiving was the Feast of Tabernacles seen in John chapter 7. It's quite interesting to see how the English-speaking world has essentially invented its own versions to the replacement of what's in the scripture. Now, I'm not against Thanksgiving, providing <laughs> we're giving thanks to God. It's, in fact, become, as we know, nothing more than a food fest and the launch of the Christmas shopping season. And, of course, Christmas is not about the birth of Jesus or the nativity. It's primarily about the worship of mammon, materialism, Father Christmas, Santa Claus, etc. Now, again, I've got no problem with the days themselves. One man esteems one day, one another. Let each be convinced in his own mind. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or fails or falls. Uh, let no one be your judge about a new moon, a festival, or a Sabbath in Colossians. I have no problem with the days as long as Christians actually celebrate the days for what they're meant to be or supposed to be. But of course, that's not what happens. It's not what happens in popular culture. And I guarantee you, most Christians, even the ones in America who are thankful to God today, I don't think one out of 10 know that the pilgrims came to America on the Mayflower to escape religious persecution, not from the Roman church, but from the Anglican church and from King James, who authorized the King James Bible. Only, I don't think one out of 10 Americans know that. It's easier to believe the popular myth. Well, if the church believes the myth, what do we expect from the world? Uh, nonetheless, we focus on what the Lord actually says. Indeed, there is much to give thanks for. And indeed, as the Lord came the first time, we are reminded during this season, he is coming again. That is what is most important. And that is why we are here this evening. We're looking at the Messianic and prophetic Psalms. 
and I'm going to try to keep it, if possible, a little bit shorter today because a lot of our American friends and families have to go to be with family for the for the uh, turkey dinners and things of this nature, and uh, that's just the way it is. But we will not stop the or will not interrupt the Bible study because of Thanksgiving. We'll give thanks to the Lord by opening his word. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 54. A bit shorter tonight. This is a messianic psalm, and it's a psalm that is called the maskil. It's on stringed instruments, but we know specifically the circumstances in which it was composed and why. It's a Davidic psalm. When the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? Save me, O God, by thy name, and vindicate me by thy power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to my words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. That word for strangers can be understood as aliens, as non-Hebrews in the context. Okay. And they have not set God before them. It can also be understood as backslidden followers of King Saul. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes, destroy them in my faithfulness. Willingly I sacrifice to thee. I will give thanks to thy name, O God, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon him. Here we see another classic example of David's ordeal when being pursued by King Saul, trying to keep power to prevent David from being power, uh, becoming the next king, being a metaphor, a prophetic metaphor of what was going to happen to Christ, the son of David. David becomes a picture of the Lord Jesus. What happens to David is in some way recapitulated or replayed. Now, remember, the same thing happens at the close of the age. You have a false brother, a false leader, who may have seemed to be gun right in the character of King Saul. And King Saul wants to keep power to stop David from ascending. So the Antichrist will try to keep power from the followers of the son of David. He'll make war against the saints of the Most High because he knows his days are numbered. In our book, Shadows of the Beast, we explain the typology of King Saul. Uh, again, like the son of perdition, like Judas. Judas was stabbed and hung. Saul was hung and stabbed on, on uh, the walls of Bethshan. I'd point you to the book. King Saul is a type of the Antichrist. So this has a meaning for David. It has a meaning for Jesus. And it has a meaning, of course, for us. But let's go and look at the circumstances. Turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel 23. Verse 19. Then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Hornish on the hill? of Hachilah, which is on the south of Yeshimon. Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul. 
to do so. And our part shall be to surrender him into your hands. And Saul said, may you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make sure and investigate and see his place where his haunt is. And he who has seen him, therefore I am told that he is very cunning. You have somebody among the followers of David, these Ziphites, who are now going to betray him to the house of Saul to have him killed. They did it for their own gain and their own self-interest. They thought it would be to their own aggrandizement and advantage. This is what happened to David. They knew the secret place of meeting. They knew the secret place of meeting. And it was said David was cunning. Now let's look at Jesus, the son of David. He was cunning. He always evaded them. Even when he was surrounded by a mob in Nazareth, he walked through them. He always got away. He was known as cunning to those who wanted him dead. And they had tried to kill him in John 8. But he, again, he was divinely protected. He was seen as being cunning. But he had a followers who knew where he was who knew that they would meet in the Garden of Gethsemane, of Gethsemane. And so Judas goes to the Sanhedrin, tells Caiaphas, the high priest, and so forth, where Jesus is going to be. He's with us. We know where he is. We're going to betray him. This is, of course, a Davidic type of Christ, a Davidic type of Christ. And it's here that David composes the psalm. So once again, understand, it has a meaning for David. It's a prophetic shadow of what would happen to Jesus, but it has future eschatological, if you will, for want of a better term, end time meaning for us. But let's look. The prayer, save me, O God, save me. Save me by thy name and vindicate me by thy power. Hear my prayer, O God. David was calling out in desperation. Jesus called out in desperation. Violent men have sought my life. This was, of course, the Sanhedrin gangs, motivated by the Sanhedrin and the corrupt priesthood, but also the Roman government. Okay? Uh, violent men have sought my life. They've not set God before them. They may have been religious, in some sense, but God was not before them, religion was, and protecting their own position. He goes on, God is my helper, the Lord's my sustainer. And he goes on, you're going to destroy them. Well, yeah, he will. He will, except for those who repent, and most will not. But then we're told the following, willingly I will sacrifice to thee. Jesus could have went to the cross, or he could not have gone to the cross. He had a choice. He made it clear. If I ask my father, he will send three legions of angels to fight the Romans and the temple guard. He'll send three legions of angels. He had a choice, but he chose to sacrifice. He chose to go to that cross to die in my place and in yours. He made that choice. I will sacrifice. David, a foreshadow of the Messiah. Well, 
he has delivered me from all trouble. And my eyes looked upon with satisfaction on my enemies in verse 7. That is ultimately true. But only when we understand it in light of such passages as Isaiah 53. He will allot him a portion with the great and divide the booty with the strong. Because of the resurrection that gets fulfilled. Notice not every type, in this case David, not every type is corresponds exactly to the antitype. In other words, a type or a shadow is not exactly the same thing. Think of a shadow on a wall of your hand. Well, it tells you something about the hand, but not until you see the hand on the wall do you see what it really is. A shadow cannot tell you all of the detail and all of the definition of something material. It just tells you about it. So these prophetic psalms are shadows. They tell us about it. King David's a type of Christ, yes, but David had sin. Christ had no sin. They're not alike in every detail. They are broadly alike in terms of what happens to them. What happens to one foreshadows what happens to the other. They're broadly alike in that sense. But every type and antitype, that is the thing that it foreshadows, they're not identical. They're not identical. Just think of identical twins. Well, they're not identical. Their iris scans, their fingerprints are different. There are subtle, these are natural clones, natural identical twins. Natural clones are still different. They're not alike in every respect. If you've got, you know, Philip and Harry, they're identical twins. You've never met Harry, but here's Philip. Harry looks like Philip. Okay, so Harry will teach you a lot about what Philip looks like. But when you see Philip, there's a few differences. Oh, yeah, I can see your twins. Maybe if I didn't see you both together, I could confuse one with the other. But now I see there's differences as well as similarities. That is the way typology works. We need to understand that, particularly when we're using poetic metaphor, particularly when we have prophetic metaphor in the typology, particularly in things like Psalms, where it's using poetry, where it's using music, okay? So it is a psalm, and we see it foreshadows Jesus, okay? We have to include it because it is a messianic prophetic psalm in our series. But now let's look to tonight's main lesson, to Psalm 56, please. My apologies for going a bit faster than normal because of Thanksgiving. I'm trying to show uh, deference to uh, our people who have to... Uh, peel the turnips and make the cranberry sauce and put the stuffing into the turkey and bake the pumpkin pie. I miss those things about the States sometimes living abroad. But here we are in Psalm 56. This is for the choir director. You're not Elim and Hokim. That means the ones are far away. Uh, a miktaim of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. This is when he was captured, when he was captured and God freed him from the hands of his captors. 
Read this with me very carefully. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee, in God, whose word I praise. Now notice, the word is worthy to be praised. There's a deification of the word of God, the word made flesh. Jesus is the Logos. One of the charges Roman Catholics make against evangelicals is, you have bible olatry. you worship a book. <laughs> God magnifies his word above his name. There's no distinction between the word and the word made flesh. It's Jesus. But that's what Catholicism does. I remember during the counterfeit revivals of Toronto and Pensacola, the false teachers who were apologists for that deception were saying things like, God is bigger than his word. He can act outside of scripture. Or things like, well, this may not be scriptural, but toasters and microwave ovens are not scriptural, and those things aren't wrong. <laughs> this is what people were saying. I remember preachers in the Elam denomination in England saying things like this, among others. There were People who were apologists for these counterfeits were saying things like this. Uh, microwave ovens and toasters are not doctrines. Uh, notice the word is worshipped. In Jewish thought, study of Torah, study of the scripture, is considered to be a high form of worship. As we always say, Oh, we have our prayer time, we have our devotions, yes? When we pray, we talk to the Lord. When we read his word, he talks back to us. It's a person. It's not a book talking. By the Holy Spirit, it's a person. Well, let's look. In God, whose word I praise, in God I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now look at verse 5. All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps, and they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth, and anger put down the peoples, O God. Thou hast taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now notice, in God, whose word I praise, lechalel, like hallelujah, okay? In the Lord, whose word I praise, the word, the word is worthy to be praised. If you love Jesus, you love the scripture. My sheep hear my voice. The first and foremost way we hear the voice of Jesus is by reading what he said under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's continue. What can man do to me? 
no grave could hold Jesus down, can't hold us down for the same reason. In my God, I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do? Remember, the most the devil can do, he thinks, is kill us. But he can't even do that. Because of the resurrection, he can't even do that. The most the world can do, they think, is kill you. They think they can kill us. But in Christ, they can't even do that. Thy vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. The real thing we have to look out for is not primarily our enemies or the enemies of the gospel. The real thing we have to look out for is our own steps from stumbling, of holding fast to the word. Yes, there will be opposition. Yes, there will be attacks from the enemy. Those things will be inevitable. But they ultimately can't do anything permanent. But if we stumble, we're in danger. The Lord will keep us from stumbling. And he will help us to regain our footage when we do. This is a bigger danger than opposition and persecution, even though the psalm does very much address opposition and persecution, which is both demonic or primarily demonic and, of course, from fallen man. Well, look at what it says. All day long they distort my words. Their thoughts are evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps. They've waited to take my life. Mark that, but turn with me very quickly, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. We will begin, please, in verse 17, when Jesus sends the apostles out in pairs. I would refer you to our recorded teaching on the future history of the church where we go into this in some length. But beware of men, they will deliver you up to courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Judicial authority will be used to persecute the church. Legal, the legal system, police, courts, and Jesus said, governors and kings, magistrates and kings, governors and kings. In other words, the persecution will be politically motivated. It will be politically motivated. More of that in a moment, but let's look. But when they deliver you up, do not be anxious about how you'll speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour you are to speak. It's not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks to you. Brother will deliver a brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. This is horrible. And you'll be hated by all on account of my name. But it is the one who endures to the end who shall be saved. 
What the Nazis did, what the communists did, is what is being done today. Children are being seen as the possession of the state. They want to indoctrinate children at a young age as possible, to believe in everything from Darwinism to same-sex marriage to abortion as a form of birth control, to, and to turn them against their parents. That is what Hitler did. That is what Stalin did. That is what Biden and Obama do. That is what governments do today. Evil, demonized men who are given to hell. It's almost impossible for people like Hitler and Stalin and Obama and Biden not to go to hell. Almost impossible for what they do to children. It's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea. They are turning children against parents, indoctrinating children. You just think of it. A teacher has more time with your child than you do most of the time. This is not good. This is one of the reasons I favor homeschooling and Christian education, or at least private education, if you can afford it, where there's a degree of parental control. The state schools are not there anymore to educate people. They're there to indoctrinate. They're not there to teach children how to think. They're there to teach them what to think. All you've got to do is look at the math scores and see that the schools are deteriorating rapidly in terms of their ability to teach children anything, most of them. They're not there for that reason. They're there for socio-political engineering. That's what they're there for. They're not there to educate. They're there to indoctrinate. That is what's going to happen in the last days. That is what is happening. The attack on the family, the attack on parental authority, the present corrupt American government, the present corrupt American government wants to use the FBI to criminalize parents as, as terrorists, talking about parents as terrorists who are challenging school boards, teaching critical race theory and woke culture. And the parents who are speaking out against it are being called terrorists, and they're hiring more FBI agents because the present American government is using the FBI as a vehicle. It's, it's unbelievable. But this is what's happening. This is what Jesus said was going to happen, and it's what's happening. And it's not only happening in the United States. Okay. You be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who shall be saved. Again, the pre-tribulational brethren who are sold out to that delusion think somehow, you know, because they're Americans or Canadians or Australians, they're going to be immune. Just because the English-speaking democracies have not had persecution for 500 years or 400 years. Yeah, well, why did the pilgrims come to America? There, there was persecution in the English-speaking world. King James drowned hundreds. He drowned hundreds of women and children in the Humber River in the north of England. They were drowned on a barge. What happened this week in the, in the channel of people trying to enter Great Britain illegally and drowning 33 of them or something? Can you imagine hundreds being drowned at the mouth of the Humber River in England by King James, who some people make, make to be some kind of a saint? That's why the pilgrims left. 
people who buy into this false security that somehow having an American passport is going to immunize you from persecution. It's only the believers in China or Vietnam or, or Malawi or, or places like that or Pakistan who are persecuted. No, that is not the case. The pre-trib myth is collapsing like a house of cards. Just listen to their preachers. They see what COVID is doing. And they see, you know, you need a, a, a passport or proof of vaccination to get into a shopping mall or a supermarket in, some, in much of Europe. All of Austria is going to be like this. And it's already like that pretty much in Israel. Without the certification that you've been vaccinated, you can't buy or sell. No one can buy or sell without taking this in their skin. Am I saying that the COVID vax is the mark of the beast? Of course not. But is it preparing the way for it? Of course it is. And the pre-trib people see this and they're beginning to get nervous. They thought they weren't going to be here for this. But here they are. Holding on to a lie. Wanting to believe the lie is the truth but realizing the reality of it. Progressively seeing there's a problem here. There's a problem here. What if I was wrong? Well, that is the Holy Spirit showing them. That is the Holy, it's not Jacob Prash or, or people like me, you know, or, the, or the Brother Kirshner or anything like that. You know, it's not Joe Schimmel. It's not any of us. It's the Holy Spirit showing them. This stuff is not true. You have bought into a false security. Wherever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Truly I say to you, you'll not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Please pray for Moriel. We are engaged at the moment in a major, major evangelistic project with local believers in Israel. Uh, we're partnering with local believers and congregations in Israel and a major evangelistic project. Just think, we will not finish evangelizing Israel until Jesus comes. A disciple's not above his master, nor a servant, a disciple's not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In other words, what they did to Jesus, they'll do to you. Now notice this stuff. All of these things, the persecution being brought before governors and kings being betrayed, as David was betrayed by the Ziphites, as we looked at. All of these things did happen to Jesus. And they did happen to the apostles and the early Christians in the book of Acts. They did not happen in John 10, when Jesus sent the apostles out in pairs, he's going to send them out in pairs, and he tells them this is what's going to happen. But it doesn't happen then. In Matthew 24, he says it's going to happen to us. It happened to him. It happened to the apostles and early Christians. In other words, this stuff is going to happen. Now, that's very much what Psalm 56 is about. Let's go back and look at it again very briefly, if you will, please. 
Verse 5, they distort my words. Their thoughts against me for evil. They attack, they lurk. They watch my steps. They've waited to take my life. They're scheming. They're conniving. They're planning. They're trying to get something on David, just as they did to Jesus. This is, of course, prophetic for him. But it's prophetic for us, according to Matthew 10. Look with me, please, to the book of Daniel, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, please. Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find the ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could not find, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Inasmuch he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Things of your beliefs that contradict their law, where man's law thinks it's superior to God's law, where the Supreme Court puts itself in place of the supreme being and legalizes murder and same-sex marriage. Let's look, same chapter, verse 12 of Daniel chapter 6. And they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man other than you, O king? Look, look what the Jews did. Look what they did. They violated the law. They want to get these laws on the books as a grounds for persecution. They lurk. They connive. Right now in Great Britain, some of the anointed servants of Satan with reservations in the lake of fire are trying to pass a law against conversion therapy. In other words, if a homosexual becomes a Christian and they realize it was sin and they reject their sinful lifestyle and turn to Christ, and they go for pastoral counseling and prayer, and they ask for help from a congregation, or if they seek a Christian psychiatrist, you will have broken the law by giving it to them. You can't do that. But wait a minute. These people have a right to freedom of belief. And if they make a choice, they don't want that lifestyle anymore. No, it's against the law. You can't have that kind of therapy. You can't tell children in school that marriage is heterosexual. It's against the law. If you begin telling that to your children, social services will be sent to your home by the teachers. These people are going to hell. They will burn in hell forever. It is very unlikely any of these people will ever get saved. Romans chapter 1 tells us that, 
God gives them over to it. They're in the waiting room for hell. But this is what they're doing, and they're aiming at Christians. If they cannot get Christians breaking criminal laws and civil laws, which we obviously as Christians strive to abide by, they will get us about our beliefs. That's what they're going to do. They're going to lurk. They're going to scheme. They're going to connive. And they're going to get laws on the books and apply them against Christians. In India, the BJP has anti-conversion laws for evangelizing Hindus and telling the Dalit they don't have to be outcasts. They put their faith in Jesus. It's against the law. The Indian government will persecute you, arrest you, prosecute criminally. In Israel, there are anti-evangelism laws. And these laws are getting worse. But that tells us we have to move forward with evangelism as radically as we can and as aggressively as we can. But know what's coming. What David experienced in Psalm 54 and 56, Jesus said is going to happen to us. It happened to David. It happened to Christ, foreshadowed by David. It happened in the early church, but it will happen at the close of the age. And it is already underway. They try to get something on you. Well, let's see the kind of stuff they try to pull. What they did to Jesus, they're going to do to us. Look with me, if you will, please, first of all, to Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, let's begin in John chapter 2, verse 19. John 2, 19 in the New Testament. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Judeans, the Jews, therefore, said, again, this is not talking about people who are Jewish. It's talking about the religious establishment of Judea. It took 46 years to rebuild this temple. That is the Herod's temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Notice the distortion of what he said. Look at Matthew uh, chapter 26, verse 61. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 26, verse 61. This man said, he stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest, who was a Sadducee, when people distort your words, and you answer, they're only going to distort your answer. They'll only distort your answer. They have an agenda. Anything you say will be used against you. Let's look at Mark 14, 58. We'll begin in verse 57. And some stood up. Well, let's, sorry. Let's begin in verse 56 of, of Mark 14. My apologies. For many were giving false testimony against him, lying against him. And yet their testimony was not consistent. Now, these were not the Romans lying against him. These were his own people. I've been lied against by Muslims. I've been lied against by Roman Catholic apologists. I've been lied against by Orthodox Jews. 
I've been lied against by all of them. I was once on the cover of the Jewish Telegraph, the Jewish newspaper for the north of England, and I read things about myself I didn't even know. I've been lied against by all kinds of unsaved people. Maybe you have too. Many Christians have. But I've been lied against by people professing to be saved Christians. Continually lied against. Stuff you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and it's not just me. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody borrowing money from his sister to buy a piece of land? And they say he stole the money from his church or from the ministry. They said that about Marco. It's unbelievable stuff. Just out and out malicious lies. Not from the world. From people claiming to be Christians. And it's getting worse. And it will get worse before Jesus comes. But let's look. Verse 57. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Just look at the way today, practically, mainstream media and social media works. Look at that Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Look at the Russian collusion myth, a fabrication paid for by politicians to which the FBI, the government, the intelligence community was complicit, knowing it was lies and pursuing politically motivated prosecutions. And the media will treat the lies as facts. Now, ultimately, they're proven to be lies, but they're lies and they manipulate public opinion. Those mechanisms you see happening in the world, in the political realm, politically motivated prosecutions, we see these things happening in the secular world among secular politicians. Make no mistake, Satan's ultimate target is to use those same devices and strategies against the body of Christ. And he will do so. They took something Jesus said and distorted it grossly out of the context he said it. He was talking about the temple of his body. Oh, he was speaking against the temple of God. This stuff with the January 6th thing and the protests of the election in America and the Russian collusion and Kyle Rittenhouse. This is nothing like what Satan is planning to do to the body of Christ. That's just practice. That's just target practice. The real goal is Jesus and his body. And then Israel. Let us make no mistake. They will distort things we say out of context. There's a teaching that's been around since the early church. Academics, Christian and Jewish, have said it was around since the early church, where the belief that the angel of the Lord, who was called the Metatron in Judaism, is a Christophany. 
an Old Testament enfleshment of Christ. It was standard evangelistic training by Jews for Jesus and things like this. It's been written and published by Christians since the 19th century, but it was believed in the early church, according to major academics. I've had people who claim to be Christians, just filthy, unprincipled liars, distorting what I said, saying that I believe in some fictional ghost. Filthy, unprincipled liars claiming to be Christian. Well, those false witnesses coming against Jesus and the Sanhedrin were just filthy, unprincipled liars. It wasn't the Romans that were the main problem, yet it was the backsliders among his own people who betray one another. That is what happens at the close of the age. But at the end, there's a day of reckoning. Now let's look at what the world does. Look at John 19.15, the Gospel of St. John 19.15. Verse 14, behold your king. Verse 15, they cried away, away with him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest, the leading clergy, said, we have no king but Caesar. They hated Caesar. The religious Jews despised Caesar. They hated Caesar. But they'll take Caesar over their own Messiah. There are Orthodox Jews in Israel today, particularly in the Hasidic sects. Oh, they may hate Muslim terrorists. but they hate Jewish believers in Jesus even more. I'm not exaggerating. There are Orthodox Jews, people in organizations like Yad Lachim, the hatred they have for Jewish believers in Yeshua is unbelievable. The Psalm talks about this. They lurk. They have an agenda. They wait. They're waiting to pounce. They're waiting for you to say something they can twist out of context, deliberately distort and misrepresent in a high-profile accusatory manner. And then politically and juridically persecute you for it. No king but Caesar. Every despotic government is governed by one overriding consideration. Self-preservation. It doesn't matter which one it is. Rome at this time had gone from being a republic to an imperial dictatorship. They were afraid of any kind of sedition. They didn't want another social rebellion of slaves like they had with Spartacus. They didn't want any kind of Jewish rebellion against the Roman authorities, which happened anyway. They wanted to keep power. That's what Rome was about. Throughout history, dictators have always been like that. Fascism was like that. Hitler, the Peronists in Argentina, 
Franco in Spain. It was always about keeping power and suppressing liberty and freedom and free speech. Mussolini did it. The Soviet Union did it. The Politburo did it. Kim Jong-il in North Korea does it. Ping in China does it. The mullahs in Iran do it. Assad in Assyria does it. Gaddafi tried to do it. Erdogan in Turkey does it. Every single despotic government makes war against democracy in order to preserve its own power. Some attempt to do it more benevolently using Confucian philosophy in the Far East. <clears throat> but there's an iron fist, don't cross this line. They're all like that. They're out to preserve power. If the political aristocracy thinks it is in danger of losing power, today that is the globalists. They can tolerate nothing, nothing that will hint at being a threat to their power base. Nothing. You're going to see this happening when the mark of the beast comes, certainly. With Daniel, they, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to the image. That's a, that image in Daniel, of course, is a shadow, a picture of the abomination of desolation. This happens with the Maccabees, predicted in Daniel chapter 11. I refer you to our recorded teaching on the Maccabees and the return of Christ. Every despotic government, its overriding concern is to preserve its own power base. And it will do anything to do it, anything. because they're all precarious. Franco was no sooner dead in Spain than fascism fell. Immediately, as soon as he was dead, Mussolini, Hitler, it's over, it's over. They all know how precarious it is. Look how quickly the Soviet Union imploded. The Warsaw Pact went down the sewer. Then the Confederation of Independent States went down the sewer, following the USSR going down the sewer, and then Russia itself was threatened with the Chechens and so forth. They know how quick it can happen. China knows about Tibet and Taiwan and then the freedom movement in Hong Kong. They know. All of these despotic governments have always known just look at Imperial Rome. They know how precarious their situation is, and they're out to keep power. Well, to keep power, they demand control over religion for political purposes. In China, you can have a state-approved church. But most of the real believers are in house churches. <laughs> They're persecuted. They're in the underground church. Oh, you can have your Christianity as long as it's controlled by us, regulated by us. You look now, in the United States, there were states 
Churches had to close, but liquor stores could stay open. Liquor stores could stay open. You had to close the churches. And if you met, you broke the law. Look at Canada. Look at Australia. These are English-speaking democracies. We preach the gospel. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Are you saying there's no salvation through Islam and Muhammad? That's hate speech. He made them male and female. That's hate speech. You're a homophobe. Your church cannot have a tax-deductible status anymore. You propagate hatred. You challenge the school system. You dare challenge the czars of the educational bureaucracy, Darwinism, sexual abnormality, as you call it. How dare you? Religion must bow the knee, but the body of Christ will not. And they will be hated. Be in good company. Daniel, the early Christians, Jesus, <laughs> the pilgrims on the Mayflower. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me, fighting all day long. He oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For they are many who fight proudly against me. But when I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? All day long, they distort my words. And their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited to take my life. And they are waiting. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God, for thou hast taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Then my enemies will turn back in that day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Couldn't kill Jesus permanently. And in him, they can't do it to us. Thy vows are binding upon me, O God. I'll render thank offering to thee, for thou hast delivered my soul from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the land of the living. Now, you have some very well-meaning sometimes, but naive Christians who misread passages such as Romans 13. Oh, we need to pray for those who are in authority. Yeah, read what the scriptures say. Oh, I want prayers and intercessions and tuxes to be made for those in authority. Why? So that we may live peaceable lives. 
so that they will leave us alone. Let us have our moral values and our beliefs and the right to propagate the way of salvation in Christ. Pray for them so they'll leave us alone. What happens when they don't? Oh, it's unloving. It's unloving to call for their destruction. I read from the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will that refrain from judging and avenging our blood? Jesus said he wishes the fire was already kindled. It doesn't matter if they listen or not. It doesn't matter if they believe me or not. Joe Biden, Jesus Christ is coming for you. Nancy Pelosi, Jesus Christ is coming for you. Barack Obama, Jesus Christ is coming for you. Tony Blair, Jesus Christ is coming for you. He's coming for you. If I were you, I'd repent really quickly. But you won't. Don't worry. You have made God your enemy. And he never loses the fight. That is what this psalm tells us. About David. About Jesus. And it's about us. They lurk for us. They wait for us. They want to twist our words. They're going to persecute us legally, juridically, with political motivation. That's what they did to Jesus. That's what the established church did to the pilgrims. That's what they did to Daniel. That's what they have always done. And that is what they're doing now. Yes, the worst is yet to come. But don't worry, dear friends. The best is yet to come. Jesus is coming again.